Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you heard you heard they were gunshots? Yeah, they were right in front of the house. Okay, did you see anything? No, no, something shooting at us. Okay, what is your name? Dina Pascalakis. Do you have any idea who it may be? I know, but they were weeping. I attempted robbery just the other night. The house is, is, is everybody okay with it? Oh, the shot! Dino Paspalakis' voice jumped an octave once he realized one of the gunshots he heard landed squarely against the skull of his sister, Lisa Fotopoulos. That shooting, 28 years ago, led to an investigation into one of the most bizarre homicide cases in Daytona Beach history. Part 1 of the Costa Fotopoulos, Deidre Hunt murder saga, and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll break down an arson that led to the stabbing of a retired deputy, a sequence of events that rocked an Edgewater neighborhood Saturday afternoon. I'll also talk about a series of fatal shootings that has plagued a Tampa Bay neighborhood. Three people were shot in a 10-day span, and police have not contradicted media accounts that a serial killer may be on the loose. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, I will take a close look at one of Florida's most shocking and sensationalized criminal cases during the past 30 years, one that included the shooting deaths of two young men, as well as a string of assassination attempts of a Daytona Beach businesswoman who all along was sleeping in the same bed as the man who most wanted her dead. Part one of that shocking story is coming up later, and my special guests for that segment are former News Journal reporter and editor Kathy Kelly and former prosecutor David Damore. I'll discuss the Edgewater arson and Tampa killings after the break. Emergency. I want to report my neighbor. He lives at. Just came over to my uh, 42. Said that uh, he's in a uh, 22 with him and his girlfriend. And if you can send Edgewater out here, and I'll just keep him over here. Alrighty, we'll get somebody out there, okay? All right, thanks. Huh? That 911 call was easy enough. 
retired Volusia County Sheriff's Captain and Marine veteran Cliff Williams was calling in a Signal 22 police code for a fight, one that had just taken place across the street. His neighbor, Michael Damalia, ran to Williams' home to seek help. Then Williams realized that Damalia's house was on fire. Then things got even worse along Pine Tree Drive in Edgewater, a small city about 20 miles south of Daytona Beach. Expedite those units and send fire rescue. Young lady started a fire in the house. Damalia's ex-girlfriend, according to law enforcement, not only wanted to burn Damalia's house down, she wanted to kill him. Williams prevented her from stabbing Damalia, but he wound up being on the wrong end of the knife. Hello? You can add battery on the LEO to that too. Okay. Expedite those on the central. I under I understand that, sir, she but just where stabbed is the me with a knife. The, she stabbed you with a knife? Yes. Okay. Expedite those units. By the time the night was over, 26-year-old Brittany Bonin wound up arrested on charges of first-degree arson, aggravated battery of a law enforcement officer, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and evidence tampering. But the next few minutes were a frenzy for Williams. He had to continue to subdue a crazed woman with a stab wound to his back, watch helplessly while a fire gutted his distraught neighbor's house. Listen to a suspect taunt him and her ex-boyfriend, all while on the phone with an impatient 911 operator who was getting tired of hearing Williams tell her to expedite the emergency response. If all that wasn't enough, the woman he had pinned to the ground turned out to be a racist. She actually came over to my house. Because you're a douchebag nigger. Stabbed me. You know what? Tried jumping on on this guy. Do you know how he talks about you? I don't care how he talks about it. Where were you stabbed, sir? You need to check. In the back, central, hurry up. It's not fatal. Okay, stop in the back. Stop going to expedite them and answer my question. Where were you stabbed? In the back, in my lower back. Williams, who is black, and Bonin started going at it. Williams made sure that Damalia, who was helping the retired deputy, kept the knife away from the suspect. Then Bonin started taunting Damalia, and she really knew how to hit low. You're the stupid one. You punch in a little white girl. Okay. You see how f***ing tiny I am? Yeah, okay. This dog weighs more than me. Yeah, okay. Did you get that knife on me yet? No. Let's stay on. Where is the knife? Why are you not cooperating with me? Does. I hope okay. your daughter dies. You know that? Right, she's in the house. Because you're nothing but a f***ing drunk. The 911 operator kept trying to get Williams to talk to her, but Williams had his hands full with Bonin. Eventually, the operator got extremely irritated. Are you ready to cooperate with me, please? And you're on probation and you shouldn't be even drinking. Yeah, you did Hello? 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 Hello?
Yes, I'm still here. The house, there's a fire there. Is that where she's talking about? Why are you not answering my question? Just before fire and police units arrived, Damalia was becoming hysterical, watching everything he owned go up in flames. His ex-girlfriend, predictably, showed no sympathy. She mocked him. Police got there and Bonin was handcuffed and then jailed without bail. Her car was towed. All Damalia had left was the clothes on his back. Williams was treated at a local hospital and released that evening. Now let's move our sights to the western end of Interstate 4 in Tampa, where a series of fatal shootings have baffled investigators. Twenty-year-old Anthony Nyboa was found dead Thursday night the third person killed in 10 days in Seminole Heights in Tampa. During a media conference Friday, a sullen Tampa police chief, Brian Dugan, talked about the slaying and how police got a call from the victim's father while his officers were simultaneously processing the scene and working the case. The shooting occurred last night at about eight o'clock. Our officers were in the neighborhood heard gunfire as they canvassed through the neighborhood. Unfortunately, one of our officers was able to find him, but it was too late. In all, three people were dead in only a week and a half, and police think they are connected. Dugan did not downplay the media's characterization that the shootings are the work of a serial killer. He simply said, quote, we can call it what we want. If that brings attention to it, that's fine. No arrests have been made, and police are still perplexed over the killer's motives and pattern. Someone is choosing bus riders at random in Seminole Heights and gunning them down. The first victim, 22-year-old Benjamin Mitchell, was found dead October 9th. Two days later, 32-year-old Monica Hoffa was killed. Mitchell was waiting for a bus at a stop at the corner of North 15th Street and East Frierson Avenue when he was shot. Nyboa was killed Thursday night at North 15th and Conover Street, a few hundred yards south from where he had gotten off the bus, which was the same spot where Mitchell was shot 10 days earlier. Dugan said police were already in the area Thursday night doing extra patrols when the third murder took place. Anthony last night was at work. He took the wrong bus to this neighborhood. He should not have been in this neighborhood. It appears that he was walking northbound, from what we think, going to another bus stop, and he did not make it. While we were out there last night, his father called the Tampa Police Department and was worried that his son was missing. 
and after further investigation, we had to regretfully inform him that his son had been murdered. The FBI is assisting in the investigation. During a media conference Friday, which was recorded and posted by the Tampa Bay Times, Dugan expressed his dismay about the killings, but urged residents of Seminole Heights not to let them alter their way of life. We're not going to be held hostage by whoever's doing this. We need everyone to come out of their homes at night, turn on their porch lights, and just not tolerate this type of terrorism in a neighborhood. We have to get people outside. This neighborhood is cooperating with us, and we have a heavy presence in there. We still have no leads. We have no motive. Coming up, we will take an in-depth look into two of Daytona's most notorious criminals of the 20th century, Costa Fotopoulos and Deidre Hunt. This particular case actually was, I think, my case of a lifetime, and it stuck with me because there were so many characters involved, so many machinations of different people doing different things. That was David Damore, former assistant state attorney who prosecuted felony cases in Volusia County during the late 80s and early 90s. His life would never be the same after November 5th, 1989. He wound up prosecuting a whopper of a murder case, one that was equal parts brutal and bizarre. Costa Fotopoulos was born in Greece in 1959. He left his homeland while a teenager to finish high school in Chicago. He became a naturalized citizen, earned a bachelor's degree, and eventually a master's degree at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona. In 1995, he married Lisa Paspalakis, a sought-after bachelorette who was the daughter of Augustine Paspalakis, a well-known successful business owner in Daytona. The wedding was lavish and the Paspalakis family was over the moon that Lisa had finally found a worthy suitor, a sharp-looking Greek man who seemed to mix perfectly with her. As it turned out, they didn't mix. They were like oil and mercury. Costa was resentful, emotionless, and aimless. He had married into a well-to-do family, but he didn't have the financial independence he had sought. His wife controlled mostly everything. That meant Costa felt unfulfilled. Marrying into Lisa's family also meant doing a lot of work. If he was to enjoy the fruits of his family's labor, that meant he had to do his fair share of the actual labor. Eventually, in spite of his wife's objections, Costa sought to occupy a place on the boardwalk, a business to call his own. He turned it into a pool hall called Top Shots, which attracted a seedy crowd. Costa had a love affair with guns. He knew how to make silencers, and he knew how to convert semi-automatic rifles into fully automatic rifles. A friend of his loaned him a gun dealer license once, and that friend hoped it would prevent Costa from getting in trouble with authorities in case he was ever caught firing fully automatic weapons at ranges. That friend later admitted it was a stupid thing to do. 
In July of 1988, Fotopoulos received a letter from the Central Intelligence Agency. Based on qualifications he submitted to the CIA, the agency saw no reason to hire him. His application and paperwork were returned to him. Costa kept that letter and the accompanying envelope. He showed the envelope to the transients on the boardwalk. He convinced people, naive people, that he was a soldier of fortune type, a hired gun, a CIA operative, a trained killer. Among those he convinced was 20-year-old Deidre Hunt, who'd soon become his mistress. The pair caused a lot of mayhem. During a 15-day span beginning October 20th, 1989, two young men were killed. One of those killings was recorded on videotape, and three murder attempts were carried out against Costas's wife, Lisa. Lisa wound up lying in a hospital bed, but the bullet lodged against her sinus cavity and never penetrated her brain, and doctors were able to save her. The story that police first gave to the media was that Costa was sleeping next to his wife when he was awakened by a gunshot. Costa then pulled a gun from under his bed and fired several rounds at the intruder, who was pronounced dead when paramedics found him, sprawled on the bedroom floor. Costa, for about 24 hours at the most, was seen as society's darling. He apparently had killed the man who burglarized his home and shot his wife. In very little time, investigators grew suspicious. Clues that contradicted the Costa is a hero tale kept pouring in, seemingly, by the hour. The media didn't know much at first. Readers of Sunday's edition of the News Journal learned that someone broke into the Fotopolis home along the Halifax River, fired a gun at Lisa, and then was put down by Costa. Damore has a clear recollection of that Sunday morning. He was in his house having breakfast with his wife when the News Journal story suddenly became the topic of conversation at the kitchen table. My wife and I were sitting there getting ready to have some breakfast. Uh, one of our kids was down, the other was getting ready to stomp down the hallway. And um, she was looking at the paper. And I hadn't seen the headline yet. And she said to me, well, this doesn't look right. And I said, what do you mean? And she handed it to me and she says, it looks like a movie. And I laughed and I said, well, this is Daytona Beach, you never know. It was the nature of the way the article was written. It didn't sound right. It just seemed like someone had taken a script from a movie that you'd seen somewhere and had now printed it as a story. And it, it was odd. Uh, that, you know, an intruder comes into a house shot by a husband, the husband's being portrayed to be a hero, and uh, it just came out of the blue. Eventually, the media did catch on. There were rumblings around police headquarters that not everything was as it seemed. Kathy Kelly worked at the News Journal for 50 years. The Fotopolis Hunt Saga was one of the most fascinating and time-consuming cases she ever covered. From the get-go, she knew it was going to be a unique case. Well, another reporter covered it for the Sunday paper, but when I came in Monday, it was up for me to 
to follow up on it. So as soon as I got to the police station talking to key players and got more of an inside look at what was going on, and by then I was starting to get calls. Within the first week, I was starting to get calls from, from some of the principals and some of the people involved in the case. So it was just... It was just an unbelievable case to report as from a reporter's standpoint. Costa's criminal proclivities included more than just firearms and violence. He smuggled counterfeit bills from Milan, Italy, and frequently used them in Daytona. He exchanged fake currency for real currency. Costa's acquaintances beyond the boardwalk weren't willing to accept the fact that this man, who married into money, and seemed to have everything he could have ever wanted, was engaging in criminal behavior, including counterfeiting. But he was. Costa would use fake money to pay people, drifters, to carry out odd jobs. They became pawns in an insurance fraud scheme he was running. At one point, one of his employees, Kevin Ramsey, found out about Costa's counterfeiting operation. He threatened to go to police, unless he got paid. Costa wound up firing Ramsey, but he would do far worse to him later. Costa had one macabre ambition. He wished to start a secret club, an assassin's club. He was to call it the Hunter Killers. He would be the ringleader and he would charge between $10,000 to $100,000 for a single murder, depending on the degree of difficulty. And he would contract them all out. He would assign an assassin to carry out the job, and he would, of course, collect a significant cut. The drifters who hung out at his pool hall, a few of them, seemed ripe for recruitment. He would tantalize the impressionable young men, some of whom were barely old enough to vote, with tales of his exploits. He'd show them that envelope from the CIA. He'd show them his firearms and other weapons. He'd show them stacks of cash. The bills were fake, but they didn't know the difference. A lot of them believed Costa was some sort of spy, in large part because he did have money. He lived in a mansion on the river. He drove a BMW. He was a big, strong guy. He was imposing, and he spoke with an accent. Costa was 30 at this time in his life, and he had no criminal record. He had a master's degree, but he was a waiter before he met Lisa. Whatever wealth and status he attained, he attained it through his wife, and yet he resented her to the point that he started contemplating what life would be like if she were dead. He had his eye on her life insurance convinced he could get a six-figure sum of money once Lisa expired, he started cooking up ideas on how to make that happen. So why was Costa, a man with so much in his favor, becoming so hell-bent on committing murder? That I couldn't answer. You know, he came from a um, lifestyle where he he studied at Embry-Riddle. He, he didn't have anything in his background to indicate that you know, he was leading this kind of double life, and he he got that job running the Top Shots pool hall through Lisa's family, but 
but that gave him an opportunity to recruit these these young people and kind of uh, shape the way they thought and and to do his bidding on certain occasions. If Costa was the fuse, the spark was Dietra Hunt, an attractive but deeply troubled New England native who had just moved to Daytona Beach with her abusive boyfriend and stayed behind after that boyfriend decided to return home. Deidre was charismatic. She had a radiance, at least to those transients on the boardwalk. People she came across frequently were captivated by her. She even enthralled people of a different class. Costa allowed one local business leader to bring her along as a date to a party hosted by a local commissioner who was running for re-election. A type of straw vote was being counted at that party. Deidre had a natural talent for doing arithmetic in her head, and she impressed the guests with her ability to add and subtract in seconds without any pen or paper. They knew nothing of the woman's dark side or tormented history. They just liked her. Deidre's younger years were horrifying. She was abused and abandoned by her mother, Carol Ann Hunt, who often tried to give her away. She wouldn't give her away through legal or proper channels. She would just hand her daughter off to someone else within the family. But Deidre would always wind up back with her mother. Here is Carol Ann talking to Boston-based news magazine Our Times about the difficulties she had raising her daughter. Well, the one thing that I remember a lot was that I used to hit her on the side of the head like this, just, you know, when she went by. I know that lots of times she stayed away from me. I know lots of times I stayed away from her, so I wouldn't hit her. Um, I slapped her in the face. As she got older, Deidre got more difficult to control. She was doing drugs as early as the second grade and having sex as early as the fourth grade. She tried reaching out to her biological father, but letters she sent to him would be returned unopened, and phone calls would never last beyond the greeting phase. That rejection from her father deeply affected her. Deidre dropped out of school in the ninth grade. She worked as a prostitute in Manchester, New Hampshire. She hung out at the city's so-called red light district, called the Combat Zone. She had multiple male and female lovers. She still had braces on her teeth. One day, Deidre and her friend named Bridget got drunk on beer and high on LSD at a house party. After the party was over, they wanted more excitement. So they drove to a park on the outskirts of town and found a woman sitting by herself in the car. She was there to pick up a friend. One of the girls, likely Bridget, asked the stranger for a light. As she reached into her purse, Deidre pointed a gun at her. The stranger struggled with Deidre, who fired the gun and shot the victim at least three times, once in the arm and twice in the body. The victim survived. Deidre and Bridget were arrested and interviewed in separate rooms. Deidre, who was more street smart than her friend, convinced detectives that Bridget was the shooter and she was an unwilling participant. Deidre struck a deal. Bridget got charged. When it came time for the victim to identify her shooting during a court hearing, she didn't see her. 
even though Bridget was sitting there in plain view. The case imploded, and the victim walked out of the courtroom, despondent. It was then that she caught a glimpse of Deidre. She called out to whoever would listen that Deidre was the shooter. But by then it was too late. Deidre got off. Deidre left the Northeast not long afterward. Boston police said she was embroiled in a murder-for-hire plot involving the slaying of a pregnant woman. Police couldn't prove her involvement, but Deidre didn't want to tempt fate. She moved to Daytona. Deidre was never tied down while she was in Florida. She'd find someone to sleep with, but eventually got bored and moved on to someone else. One night, a woman named Sheila brought her home to spend the night with her. Only she had to make sure her roommate, Lori, was cool with it. Lori was more than cool with it. She liked Deidre immediately, and the two began a physical relationship. In a matter of days, Lori kicked out Sheila and let Deidre move in with her. Deidre later hooked up with one of Costa's business partners, which was how she got introduced to Costa. She hung out at Top Shots, got hired to work there, and before long, the pair began their lustful affair. Deidre excited Costa, who was determined never to lose her to someone else. Well, it's an old-fashioned word, but I think she was quite the vixen. When she uh, lived in Massachusetts before she came here, she'd already been involved with older men. And when she came here, she got involved with some of those young men who came to the to the uh, pool hall. She was involved with one who claimed he was madly in love with her. And then he began to see that she was very um, she was very needy and materialistic. Soon she showed up with, with expensive jewelry that Costa was buying her. This young man couldn't begin to compete with that. Costa paid for Deidre's living spaces. The two of them were openly affectionate, sexual, and anyone who saw them together knew they were a hot item. Deidre was Costas's second-in-command at Top Shots. Whenever he needed someone to do dirty work, Deidre would summon them. They did whatever she told them to do. The biggest job Costa wanted done was murdering Lisa. Deidre was on board. Lisa had everything Deidre wanted. Wealth, a snazzy wardrobe, sophistication, and Costa. Here is Deidre's mother, Carol Ann, telling Our Times about a conversation she had with her daughter about her relationship with Costa. She said, I, I guess you know that I'm having a fear. And I said, well, Deidre, I said, you know, do you know what you're doing? And she said, well, she said he's going to get a divorce from his wife. She said, he's, you know, he's really crazy about me. A divorce wasn't coming. That wasn't going to result in a small fortune for Costa. He was planning a murder. With Deidre's help, Costa found three candidates to carry out the killing. They were J.R. Taylor, Matthew Chumbly, and Tija James. J.R. was the first to be hired to kill Lisa. He was offered $10,000. Lori, who was still Deidre's close confidant, warned him that if he did the shooting, Costa would kill him. So J.R. heeded her warning. He was scheduled to meet Costa to pick up the gun, but he never showed. Next was Chumbly, 
who was supposed to meet Deidre and Costa and be shown the stacks of money he would be getting for shooting Lisa. But he burglarized a home that night and got arrested instead. Next up was Tija. At a crowded Halloween party at Razzle's, a nightclub near the beach, Tija showed up to do the job. Costa had instructed Tija to stab Lisa in the diaphragm so that she could not scream for help. Tija approached Lisa a few times at that party with a knife under his sleeve. But he chickened out. There were just too many people around. Costa felt like he was running out of time. Lisa suspected strongly that Costa was having an affair with Deidre and she told him if she catches him, she's leaving him. A day or two after that Halloween party on November 1st, Tija showed up at Lisa's business, a place called Joyland, and pulled a gun on her. The gun didn't fire. Lisa literally crawled under Tija's legs to escape. She sprinted away, got lost in a crowd, and Tija lost track of her. Now that Tija was spotted by Lisa, he could no longer be the one to commit the murder. Deidre and Costa needed to find someone else, and quickly. Lisa was on the brink of leaving Costa, which in his mind meant that he was on the brink of losing the life insurance payout he thought would be owed to him. At 1.30 a.m. on November 4th, Dino Paspalakis, Lisa's brother, who lived in the same house as the couple, came home. He saw Lisa, Costa, and a family friend in the living room watching television. He went upstairs to watch TV and eventually fell asleep. Around 4.30 a.m., he was awakened by what he thought were firecrackers from outside the house. He walked into the hallway and asked Costa what had happened. Costa told him to call 911. He did. As you can hear, he spoke in a normal tone at first until Costa told him that Lisa had been shot. 's mother also lived in the house. She ran into the bedroom, hysterical. Costa put up a good front. He acted as though he was distraught over his wife, who was bleeding from her head onto her pillow. 
Seconds earlier, 18-year-old Brian Chase had entered the house through the bottom floor. He had tried previous nights to break in, but couldn't penetrate the plexiglass window. Finally, after the third try, after Costa had helped him, and after Deidre had repeatedly goaded him, he entered the house with a 22 caliber handgun and did what he was told. He walked up the stairs, entered the master bedroom, walked to the side of the bed where Lisa was lying, and shot her. After the first round went off, the gun jammed. It was the same gun Tija had used a few days earlier at Joyland. Costa, who was lying next to Lisa waiting for Chase, fired off about six rounds, including a point-blank shot to Chase's head. The intruder was dead. Deidre, meanwhile, was parked nearby on a dark street. She heard the sirens. She drove by Costa's house and saw the fleet of police cars with their lights flashing. She smiled and drove away. Lisa unexpectedly appeared as though she was going to survive. Costa, who was mysteriously absent from his wife's hospital room, was starting to look less and less like a hero. Dino, who had always been close to his sister, always thought Costa was an oddball. He knew the marriage was on the rocks, and he suspected Costa was trying to kill Lisa. Costa learned Tija knew how to make a bomb, so Tija was ordered to start working on one. In his last-ditch, desperate attempt to kill Lisa, Costa wanted to detonate a bomb in Lisa's room, a la Walter White. Lisa was going to get blown up, a la Gus Fring. But the bomb never got there. Before long, Deidre was arrested. Then Lori was arrested. Then Tija was arrested. And eventually Costa. JR called the police to report what he knew. Chumbly was picked up on a petty theft charge and then spilled his guts to authorities. Detectives may have thought pieces of the investigation were fitting into place and things would get easier. But they didn't know the worst of it. There was a videotape. And it was disturbing. And it landed two people on death row. Tune in next week for part two of this sordid saga. You will hear a 911 call from one of the players who was recruited to shoot Lisa. You'll hear audio from that videotape. And you'll hear clips from Deidre during her police interview and sentencing hearing. You'll also hear more from David Damore and Kathy Kelly, plus a couple more special guests. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... Uh 
human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.